But this week, we're gonna continue our study looking at chapter two, verses one through seven, where Paul begins to instruct the church on what this life built on right doctrine looks like. And so I wanna read verses one through seven for us today, then we're gonna pray, and then we will move into uh, our time of message. So let's read these verses. First Timothy two, one through seven, this is the word of the Lord. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Let's pray together. Father, we come today to your word and we ask that our hearts would be good soil. We ask that your spirit would work in us and apply this to us in a way that only your spirit can do, that you would open our hearts to receive the truth of your word, to receive the illumination of your Holy Spirit to convict us in the ways that we need to repent, to change, and to even invite people today to put their faith in Christ so that we as a church can unite around the mission that we've been given to make disciples of all nations. Pray in Christ's name, amen. So let me ask you a question. So if, if you're a Christian in this room today, why does God still have you here? Ever thought about that? Like why did not when you got saved, did God not just tractor beam you, star trek you up into heaven? Ever thought about that? You know, because if you think about it, if the point of just becoming a Christian is to go to heaven, then why not just go now? If the point of becoming a Christian is just to know more of the Bible, if the point of a Christian life is just to grow in Christian community or to grow in holiness, couldn't all that stuff be more accomplished and perfectly accomplished if God just brought, took all Christians to heaven right now? Or if Jesus came back immediately right now? You ever thought about that? And if that's the case then, why are we still here? If you're a Christian, why do you still exist on this earth? Well, the easy answer is because we have a job to do that we have work to do, that Jesus has commissioned us as a church to be on mission here in the world to make disciples of all nations. And that's what Paul is gonna point us to today. But unfortunately, I know in my life and in the life of many Christians and churches, it's so easy for us to drift from our mission. You know what I mean? You think about it this way, if the church is like a ship and we're sailing toward a destination, it's so easy for us many times as a church and as Christians to create our lives to be like a cruise ship where everything is centered around our own preferences, our comfort, you know, our own entertainment, when really the church should be more like a, a battleship. Really a better analogy is a, a aircraft carrier. That everything we do, our whole lives, our whole churches are centered around accomplishing the mission of God where everything is built around this purpose and we're constantly seeking to engage in the mission. Imagine if tomorrow the U.S. military said, hey, we're gonna start building all of our aircraft carriers, our battleships, we're gonna start building them with swimming pools, you know, and movie theaters, right? There'd be a taxpayer uprising, right? Because we already complain about how much money our government wastes, right? Imagine the complaints if they said that they're gonna be building battleships like cruise ships, right? 
because it'd be a waste of money. But yet how often in our lives and in the church do we get so caught up in our own comfort, our own entertainment, our own preferences when there's a mission out there that our life should be built on and should be built all around? And that's the point that Paul's gonna make in our text today. But he makes it in a surprising way if you see how he does this in verse one. He starts with urging us and urging the church to pray, to pray for the nations. So what we're gonna do today in our text is look at three things. We're gonna first look at the church's prayer. Second, we'll look at the motivation for prayer. And thirdly, we're gonna look at the implication of prayer, all right? Church's prayer, the motivation, and the implication. Let's start in verses one here, because you look how verse one starts, and Paul says, first of all. But I don't think he means, you know, first thing on my list to talk about in this letter. I don't think this is a statement of order. I think it's a statement of priority, that Paul is saying that this should be top priority for the church, that like we saw in chapter one, instead of getting caught up in all this speculation about stuff that's not clear in the Bible, Paul tells them to stand strong in the gospel and focus on the mission. And that starts with prayer. And that may seem weird to you, may seem strange, but honestly, this lines up really well with what Jesus taught his disciples. Consider Matthew 9, 37 and 38. Jesus told his disciples, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So in light of the need for laborers to go out into this gospel harvest in the world, I find it fascinating that Jesus didn't just say, all right, now go. There's a great need, so go and, and, and accomplish it. Now, what does he say? He says, no, first pray. He says, pray to the Lord to send out laborers into the harvest field. And why would he say that? Why would Paul commission us to pray first in this? Well, I think it's because Jesus and Paul knew well that prayer is the way that God changes our hearts. That prayer is a way that God lines our hearts up with his heart. And today we're tiling this message, God's people with God's heart, because that's exactly what Paul wants us to have. Because as we see in the text today, and in that thing we just saw with Matthew 9, that God's gonna have, or God has a heart for all people to be saved, so the church should pray that all people around the world can be saved and hear the gospel. But like Matthew 9 says, many times we're gonna end up being the answer to our own prayers as we pray that prayer. That as we pray for the nations to hear the gospel, as we pray for laborers to be sent out, that we're gonna end up becoming that answer. We're gonna be compelled by God's heart for the nations. We're gonna be compelled as our hearts are lined up with God's heart to go and to share the gospel and to make disciples of all nations, to be laborers ourselves. Because God knows that prayer lines us up with him. And honestly, prayer is one of the primary ways that God wants to seek to accomplish his will in the world, which seems counterintuitive to us, but it's what the Bible teaches us. So then you see, first off, he says, first of all, but then Paul throws out this kind of hodgepodge, right, of collections of words that all describe prayer. But really, it's more than just prayer in general. It's deep and intentional prayer. He says, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. And I'm like, okay, we get it, Paul. We get the, <laughs> the idea. Pray, you know? you know? But more than just giving some exhaustive list here, I think what Paul is probably doing is he's you know, driving home this point of how important and how serious we should be about prayer for all people. Because think about it. This is what he's telling us. That if nothing changes... There are billions of people in the world right now that are on their way to an eternity in hell, separated from God. 
And while there's so much that we can do and should do, one of the most important and powerful things we can do is pray for those people, which honestly seems way too easy, right? Like, I mean, I don't have to get out of bed to pray. I don't have to put on nice clothes. I don't have to leave the house, right? You don't even have to talk to anybody, right, except for God. But yet he says to pray. And Paul says that if you wanna have influence on lost people around you, if you wanna have influence on the lost people of the world, then start with prayer. He says, that we'll see in a second, he says, if you wanna have influence on presidents, on kings, on queens, on dictators and rulers, guess what? Start by praying. If you wanna see people not die and go to hell, but die and go to heaven and come to know Jesus, start with prayer. Start with prayer. You should pray. But who do we pray for, Paul? Well, Paul says, all people. Well, thanks, that, that's really helpful, Paul. Like, you know, all people, great. You know, I can't pray for every person in the world. I'm a finite individual, right? Yeah, well, Paul gets that. It seems incredibly vague, but I think it's helpful when we consider that most translators and scholars say that that word, all people, it's really best understood like all kinds of people. All kinds of people, because it makes sense. Because if you think about the context of the church in Ephesus in that city, the false teaching that Paul's calling out had a very exclusive focus. That the false teachers there were saying that only really two kinds of people could be saved. People that followed the Jewish ceremonial law and people that ascended to this like mystical spiritual knowledge. It was a weird thing. All right, don't worry about it too much. But that exclusive thought Paul is saying is anti-gospel. It goes against the heart of God and that kind of exclusive thinking would lead the church to have no motive to pray for the lost and definitely no motive to share the gospel with them. It was an exclusive idea. Yet Paul says the gospel is for everybody. It's for every kind of person. So start by praying for them. And Paul has more to say about who we should pray for. He says that we should pray for kings and all who are in high positions. But this is fascinating because if you think about it, if you look at your history, there were likely zero Christian rulers in the world at this time. Probably no Christian rulers. And then Paul is writing during the time that the Roman emperor was Nero, a guy who killed Christians violently. He put Christians in animal skins and threw them to wild dogs to be killed. He put Christians and covered them in wax and lit them like candles in, the, in his garden. But yet Paul says, pray for people like Nero. Pray for leaders like Nero. Don't, don't just pray for the leaders that you like. Don't just pray for the ones you know, that agree with everything that you stand for, but pray for the ones even that you suffer under, the ones you don't agree with, even the ones you don't approve of, because this is God's will. This is what God calls us to do. But then he gives the reason why we should pray for them. He says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And Paul is saying here that we're supposed to pray for rulers to lead in a way that creates a society that allows the church to fulfill its calling. A pastor and theologian, John Stott, said it this way. He said, the ultimate object of our prayers for national leaders is that the context of the peace they preserve, that in the context of the peace they preserve, religion and morality can flourish and evangelism can go forward without interruption. But Paul's not saying that we should just pray to live like a peaceful, quiet, suburban American dream life. He's definitely not saying that because in his second letter to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3.12, he says this, that all who desire to live a godly life, which Paul says to pray that we can live a godly life, he says all that desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So he's saying that living as a Christian is always gonna include some level of sacrifice 
sometimes even being persecuted by church leaders. But we're told here to pray for world leaders so that they can lead in a way that creates a peaceful environment for the church to thrive and so that the gospel can go out easily. Uh, in America, we're really privileged and blessed with that kind of environment. But we gotta remember, there's believers all around the world that don't have that. Believers like in Saudi Arabia, in North Korea, in China, so many places where the government, the leaders are not leading in a way that creates that environment for the church to thrive and the gospel to go out. So Paul's telling us here to take time to pray for those believers and specifically take time to pray for the leaders of those countries, that they would repent and believe in Jesus, or at least that they would begin leading in a way so the gospel can spread even faster to those people that don't have the gospel. But also, you knew I was going here, all right? I can't neglect to remind you that something's happening Wednesday in our country, right? That we're inaugurating a new U.S. president on Wednesday. And no matter how you feel about Joe Biden, he is no Nero, no matter what the Republicans may say, all right? <laughs> and as Christians, God's word clearly says here to pray for our leaders, not to attempt insurrections when they are getting elected in the Capitol, all right? It says to pray for our leaders. So I wanna charge you this week to begin to pray for, if you have not, soon-to-be President Biden and all the other leaders that will soon take office. Pray that God would guide their leadership in our country to promote justice, to maintain peace, to increase the welfare in our country and to lead and create an environment where the gospel can continue to go forth in our country and around the world because they have that kind of influence. Let's pray for that to happen. We don't just pray for the ones we like. We pray for the ones that God has put in leadership. But we also have to ask another hard question, not just about the king's part, but also about our prayers in general. This is a hard one I've been asking this week. How often are our prayers honestly too small? And how often are honestly our prayers kind of selfish? You know, how often do our prayer requests in Bible study, you know, kind of boil down to us asking God to make us and those around us safe, happy, and healthy? And that's kind of it. There's nothing wrong with praying for those kind of things. By the way, our church does a fantastic job of compiling lists to pray for our sick and our needy members. We do a fantastic job at that, but I think the Bible shows us there's so much more that we're called to pray for as Christians. That if God desires the whole world to be saved, how often are we praying along with God's heart in that? That the whole world would come to know the gospel. Because what Paul is saying in these verses is amazing. He's saying the progress of the gospel in the world is dependent on the prayers of God's people in the church. It's dependent on prayer. And yes, God is sovereign over everything, but he has chosen to use prayer as a way to accomplish his will. That prayer moves the hand of God, as some people say. But the question is, do we pray like this? Like, do I pray like this? Do you pray like this? There are billions of people in the world right now that haven't even heard the name of Jesus. I had a chance to go to China a few years ago and go to a village and literally we got to mention Jesus somebody and they said, Jesus, who's that? Is that an American thing? Broke my heart. It's one thing to hear about it in a video in an IMB thing in service. It's different to see it in front of your eyes. There are billions in the world who have not heard the name of Jesus who are destined for an eternity in hell unless they hear and respond to the gospel message, a message they have not even heard yet. They have no access to, no access to. A.B. Simpson, he was the founder of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. He was said to wake up in the morning, to bow on his knees, to hold a globe and to weep in prayer for the nations. 
to weep in prayer. Now I'll be honest, like, it's rare for me to even take time to pray for the lost around the world, much less weep in prayer with a globe, if I'm honest. But God's word is challenging us today. It's, it's challenged me incredibly this week in my need to grow in praying for the lost, to grow in praying for the lost of the world. So I wanna ask you today, will you join me in that? Will you join me in this command by God to pray for the lost of the world? Will you join me in it? A great resource in this is a website I came across a couple years ago called joshuaproject.net. joshuaproject.net. It's a great website that has all kinds of resources to pray for unreached people groups around the world. It gives you statistics on what level of access to the gospel they have, specific needs and ways to pray for them. I wanna challenge you. Check out that website and begin to pray. They even give you an unreached people of the day. They have an app that will tell you, say, pray for Muslims in China, and they'll give you all kinds of stuff about them. I wanna challenge you to that. Let's take up this cause, because God has called us to it. But that's the first thing. That's, that's our prayer for, that's the church's prayer. But then Paul gets into the motivation for prayer in verses three through six. And really, he gives three things, but really what he says is the motivation for our prayer is really God's passion for the world. And he outlines this in three specific truths. The first is this, is that God desires all people to be saved and to come to a saving knowledge of the truth. First off, you could say that that word all in verse three means a similar thing it did in verse one, that it could mean all kinds of people when Paul says all. And that could yet again be Paul combating that elitism of the day. But that still doesn't discount the fact that the Bible clearly teaches that God desires for all people to be saved. Ezekiel 18, 23 and 32 says this. This is God speaking. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. But here's the hard part. We know and we see that God desires all people to be saved, but the the problem is not all people will be saved, right? The Bible makes this clear. Jesus talked about hell a lot, and he made it very clear that not everyone would be saved because he talked about things like people being cast into outer darkness and people being cast into eternal punishment. The book of Revelation makes it really clear when it describes unbelieving people at the end of time being thrown into a lake of fire for eternal punishment. The Bible makes it clear not everybody will be saved. So the question is, if God desires everybody to be saved but not everyone's saved, then how do we reconcile those two ideas? I mean, is it because God's not powerful enough to accomplish what he wants to do? No, definitely not at all. And these are deep waters we're getting into here, but I think you can think of it this way, that, that God's desire for world salvation is different from his ultimate saving purpose. There's a difference. And if you think about it, this is kind of true even from our perspective. Think about us. Like, you know, you may desire to take a nap instead of going to class, college students, but you have a higher purpose, right, in getting an education and starting a career that's gonna motivate you to go to class even though your desire may be to take a nap, all right? Now, that's a human example because God isn't forced by circumstances to do what he doesn't wanna do, all right? But I think it kind of gives the point here. God is only driven by his sovereign purposes. But the question still is, what then ultimate purpose does God have that might keep people from being saved even when God desires them all to be saved? Well, if you're Arminian in your theology, 
You'll say that God's greater saving purpose is to preserve our freedom to choose him. That that's necessary if we're gonna truly love God and not be robots, that we have the freedom to choose him. So he has to allow some people to reject his offer of salvation. That's if you're Arminian. If you're Calvinist, God's greater saving purpose is to display his glory by graciously choosing certain people to be saved while passing over the rest so that God can be also glorified in his justice to punish sin. As Paul would say in Romans, that God might be both the just and the justifier. Wherever you fall on that, the Bible clearly teaches us no matter what, that God is sovereign over salvation, but at the same time, every person is responsible to respond to the gospel call. They're both true, but it's a divine mystery that in Romans 11, Paul just breaks out in worship saying, who can really question God's ways? We don't get it, but he's God. We trust him. But regardless of that, if that was too deep for you, we can move on from that. But regardless of that, this passage clearly teaches us that God desires everybody to be saved. So Christians owe the gospel to every lost person in the world. That David Platt said that every Christian this side of heaven owes the gospel to every lost person this side of hell. That we owe it to them. So that's the first truth that motivates us. The second is this, is that not only does God desire everyone to be saved, but God deserves the worship of all people. Because if you notice in verse five, Paul says that there is one God. And that's a really simple statement, right? But it has tons of significance. I'm a preacher, right? Every word, we're gonna make it count, right? But in that time and in ours, right? Think about it. There were so many religions that had all this pantheon of gods they claimed to worship. Yet Paul says there's only one true, there's only one true God and that people are created to worship him alone. So what this means then Yet again, this monotheism is to drive us into mission. That there's only one God, our exclusive faith in one God leads us to an inclusive mission. That this one God wants all to be saved. But that also means that worship is both the fuel and the goal of mission. That worship is the fuel and the goal of mission and it's the fuel and goal of us praying for the world. Uh, the way that Pastor John Piper says it, he says, mission exists, missions exist, because worship doesn't. That the more that we grow in our love and worship of God, the more we should want the rest of the world to experience that love and worship. And as an overflow of our own worship, we should pray and work for others to hear the gospel so that they can worship as well. Because God deserves and desires the worship of every person in the world. So we should pray to that end. But in the third truth that's our motivation is that Christ died as a ransom for all people. We see this in verses five and six. Really, I love this statement. Paul gives the gospel in a short, tweetable statement. It's so powerful. He says, There's only, he says, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now again, this word all here doesn't mean that everybody will be saved. It means that Christ's sacrifice is enough for anyone who believes but Christ's sacrifice is only effective for those that actually believe. But this clear statement of Christ's sacrifice honestly is the ultimate testimony of God's desire for all people to be saved. And really there's three things about Christ here that clearly show God's work to make salvation available to everybody, to all people. First is this, that first is that Christ came as a man yet was fully God. That's how he can be the only mediator that can stand between us and God and bring us back together. That as fully God, Jesus can identify with God in his divinity and his perfection, but as fully man, Jesus can stand in our place as the representative human to take on our sin, to take on our punishment, and to die for us. 
But second, Christ also gave his life as a ransom for us. You know, that's to say that we were held captive. We were in bondage to sin and judgment, that we were unable to save ourselves, yet Christ came and died in our place for our freedom, to be our ransom. That on the cross, Jesus offered his life as the exchange price so that we could be set free from the penalty of sin. And as Jesus died on the cross, he cried out, it is finished, to declare that the price had fully been paid for us so that we could receive forgiveness. He's our ransom. But thirdly, Christ now stands as our mediator, as one mediator. And that Jesus isn't just our mediator in the past based on what he did, but we know that on the third day he rose again in a physical glorified body to display his victory over sin and death. And that 40 days later, he ascended into heaven to the right hand of the Father where he now continually acts as our mediator. That we know at this very moment, Jesus is standing at the right hand of God interceding for every Christian. He's interceding for you if you're in Christ. He's standing before God. He's presenting himself right now as our perfect righteousness so that if you're a Christian, you can be absolutely sure of God's love for you, that you can have full access to his grace, that he's mediating for us right now, right now. So because God desires all people to be saved, because he deserves the worship of all people, and because Christ died as a ransom for all people, the church then, we then, should be compelled to pray for the salvation of all people all around the world. And that leads us to the third point today as we begin to wrap up. Because all of this has an obvious implication for what we should do as Christians. And Paul first says this specifically about himself. In verse seven, he says, for this, this being the gospel he just outlined, for this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. He's defending himself against the false teachers who say he's not an apostle. It says, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So Paul says that God's desire for all people to be saved is what led God to appoint him as a preacher, a teacher to the Gentiles, which is to say to the whole world, because you had not just the Jews, but the Gentiles, that Paul was appointed to get the gospel to everybody, to the whole world, that God desires that as well. And now we know, like we talked about a couple weeks ago in our intro to this series, there's no more apostles anymore. That office has gone away because none one, no one here today has firsthand met Jesus in person and been commissioned by him to be an apostle. But the gospel today still compels us to be preachers and teachers of the gospel. And preaching is a lot more than what I'm doing up here right now. That word preaching literally means to be a, a proclaimer, that every Christian is called to be a proclaimer of the gospel, to be a teacher of the gospel. The Great Commission calls us to make disciples of all nations, teaching them all the things that Christ taught us. That it's proclamation and it's teaching. So Paul is saying that as we pray to God for all people, we therefore naturally should be compelled then to share the gospel with all people. It's like Martin Luther said. He said, it wouldn't matter if Jesus died a thousand times if no one heard about it. It wouldn't matter if he died a thousand times and no one ever heard about it. So church, this is why we exist. This is why God has left you on the planet, is to get the gospel to everyone, is to be about the work of praying for all people to receive Christ and be about the work of getting that gospel to everyone that we can. That's why we exist, that's why I exist. But the question is, is this, is this what our life is built on? Is this what our life is actually centered on? Do we care about billions of people on their way to hell right now? Do I care? Does my heart break for these kind of things? Does our heart as a church break over what breaks God's heart? It's a hard question, something I've been wrestling with this week, and it's something God is inviting us to today, to break over the things that break God's heart. 
Richard Baxter, an old English pastor, says it in a way that only a Puritan can. He says, let your heart yearn for your ungodly neighbors. Alas, there is but a step between them and death and hell. Many hundred diseases are waiting, ready to seize on them, and if they die unregenerate, they will be lost forever. Have you hearts of rock that cannot pity men in such a case as this? Do you not care who is damned as long as you are saved? If you, if so, you have sufficient cause to pity yourselves, for it is a frame of spirit utterly inconsistent with grace. He's saying you don't get grace if you don't care. He says, do you live close by them or meet them in the streets or work with them or travel with them or sit and talk with them and say nothing to them of their souls or the life to come? If their house were on fire, you would run and help them. And will you not help them when their souls are almost at the fire of hell? Y'all, this is hard. This has been messing with me all week. And honestly, I think every Christian should have some kind of level of this, this, this tension in their life all the time, that there are billions of people around the world on the way to hell. What are we doing about it? We can't do everything, but that holy discontentment in our lives should drive us to want to do something. And Paul tells us today that one of the most important things we can do is begin by praying and then move from there to working and actually sharing the gospel, both in our city and around the world. So I wanna ask you, uh, are you doing this? Do you have lost people you know that you're praying for? Do you take regular time to pray for the lost around the world? I'm not here to heap condemnation on you. I'm preaching to myself just as much as anybody else here. But is this what we do? Because this, this is something Paul says is a first priority for the church. This is what we're to be about. So let's receive this today. Let's change, let's repent in the ways that we need to, myself included. This is what God calls us to, to be God's people with God's heart. But as we close, we gotta remember that our mission as the church is not some kind of just optimistic wish that may happen one day, but we gotta know that one day the mission will succeed. That one day this mission, whether we choose to be part of it or not, that God sovereignly will accomplish his purposes. And we see this in Revelation 9 when the apostle John gives this vision. In Revelation 7, sorry, yeah, Revelation 7, not 9. 7, 9 through 10 says this, and after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice. They were saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The question is, what are we doing to contribute to that picture? What are we doing this week to be actively engaged in God's mission to have people from every tribe, every nation, every neighborhood, every city to be in the throne room with the Lord, singing praises to him, being redeemed by the blood of the lamb? What are we doing? Are we praying to that end? So until that day, let's be God's people with God's heart. Let's take up the cause of praying for the souls of the world. Let's work to be the answer to our own prayers as we break over the losses of the world and that we get to work sharing the gospel, beginning this week with the ones that God has put around you, at your job, in your classes, people you live with, family, all the different spheres that God has placed you in, he's put you there on purpose. It's not an accident. So does your heart break for what breaks God's heart and what are you gonna do about it this week? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We know that this is a heavy word, but Father, it's for our good. We need to be 
awakened sometimes from the, the, the constant distraction that, that is in our world away from things that really ultimately matter and that we need to be recentered, myself so much included. We need to be recentered to remember why we exist. The reason you've left us here in this world. So Lord, break our hearts for what breaks yours. Lord, help us to, in some way, be able to wrestle with the weightiness of billions of people on their way to hell. Of thousands upon thousands, probably here in this city in that same condition. And that you have given us the opportunity and the call and the commission to pray for you to send out laborers and to go be laborers ourselves. So Lord, open our eyes to the ways that your work around us. Open our eyes to the people that you've placed around us that we have the chance this week to share the life-saving good news with. And that as we share that in word, that we may live it out in our lives and in deeds as well. Pray in Christ's name, amen.